Karp, the uh, founder and chairman of CSA and your host for the CSA podcast show. And here today we have another one of our episodes for the Security Leader Interview Series. And uh, today it's my pleasure to interview and learn from Jim McGlone, and somebody I've known for, for some years who lives in uh, the central uh, Ohio region where I used to live for some years. So uh, we have some things in common beyond that, which we'll get to. So welcome, uh, Jim. Thank you. Let's let's sort of, uh, you know, I always like to get people's backstory. You know, if there's any sort of modern day superheroes, I want to say people that are working on cybersecurity problems in our modern connected society are some some form of superhero. So let's get your backstory. Uh, where, where's Jim from? Where, where'd you grow up? So um, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my dad was uh, just out of the Navy and um, after uh, the Korean War. And he uh, he was working for a government contractor at the time. It was a company called Goodyear Aerospace. And they basically drug us around the world uh, as kids. So um, I grew up, uh, the, the first memories I really have as a child were in Germany. And uh, we lived in Germany. Um, we had, uh, I didn't know what a go bag was, but I had a go bag. Um, my dad had a job where basically he was responsible for uh, all the control systems and the targeting mechanisms on MACE missiles, which were Cold War era missiles that were pointed at Russia, nuclear weapons basically pointed at Russia on German bases. And so uh, I grew up kind of in a weird life, uh, every now and then a little stressful, every now and then pretty strange. We took weird vacations to places that I found out in my 50s were actually safe houses, <laughs> uh, but I didn't know that as a kid. Um, they were just cool people uh, in Switzerland and stuff. So, uh, and then um, we moved back uh, when I was in grade school, uh, we moved back to a um, little town near Akron, Ohio, called Uniontown. Uh, that's Uniontown, Hartville area. And um, I grew up amongst a bunch of really interesting people that uh, kind of lived on the edge of uh, Amish country and somewhere between Amish country and civilization, if you will. Uh, so um, I followed horse buggies to school a lot and there was an Amish school on the school grounds where I went to school so that was pretty neat. Interesting uh, experience you know growing up in different parts of Europe or at least visiting different parts of Europe as a young person not everybody gets to do that I can I can appreciate that being you know big sort of unique unique part of childhood. Um, do you happen to recall uh, I mean most people do you know what they what you call your first job you know it's interesting we talk about these careers and I always want to go all the way back to that. You know, what did people, what did they start out doing? Um, you know, even before it became, you know, a real job, you know, what did you first start working on and, and how old were you? Actually, I was uh, a newspaper carrier. <laughs> yeah. uh, so my first real job other than mowing yards for neighbors and stuff when they would pay you was um, I carried newspapers for the Akron Beacon Journal for a long time. Um, several Christmases, I remember getting up very early in the morning and walking through the snow to deliver newspapers which has really ruined holidays for me, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, that's, I remember, law, I, you know, there's a common thread with many people, lawn mowing and, uh, you know, and newspapers and lawn mowing. I don't want to mow any lawns anymore. You know, it was just that still in the dark, uh, you know, at the end of the season, the school's already started and still have lawns you got to do. And it's like, you know, the sun's going down and I'm finishing a lawn. Yeah, it just, it burned me out on lawn mowing. I got to think probably the real first job I had where I actually got a formal paycheck other than I, the Beacon Journal was kind of weird, but um, 
uh, I worked at Firestone Country Club, and um, that was really neat. I got to meet a lot of really cool people. Uh, probably my favorite was Arnold Palmer. Uh, I actually sat down and ate part of a meal with Arnold Palmer and for about 15 minutes, and he asked me questions about uh, what I was going to be and how my golf game was. And I yeah. actually was quite fond of golf back then. So that, those were kind of my first first jobs, if you will. Yeah. And so um, not to go necessarily unpack it yet, does technology uh, or, or engineering or anything play a part yet or that's still to come? No, um, probably while I was, I'm pretty sure while I was at Firestone, I actually put an AM FM uh, radio in my dad's car. Um, uh, and it, well, I was kind of driving it mostly at the time and I was really tired of AM radio stations. So I bought an AM FM eight track player. And uh, that was probably the first time I really ever messed with electricity or anything that could be called technology. Yeah. And and I know a little bit about your story. You went on, then decided to go to school, and you, you you start looking into stuff in that area, right? Yeah, actually, I went to I I went to the University of Akron after I graduated from high school, and um, I was going to be a double E. Yeah, uh, and that didn't go well. <laughs> uh, I was a, a terrible double E student. Um, a guy who actually worked with my dad was my very first instructor. He was teaching the DC circuits theory class. And I actually got an F in it. And he told my dad that I, I was I was wasting my dad's money going to college, which was really a great conversation to have with your dad when you're living at home trying to find your way in the world. Um, but uh, they taught positive potential. And I, I knew the electrons were what was actually doing the work and moving, and it bothered me. And, and I couldn't get that out of my head. And I, I did better at physics. We had a couple little introductory courses to physics. I did okay at that. But but electronics was terrible, or electricity anyway, double E type thing was, it was a terrible road for me. But going from installing the AMFM to like, I mean, I'm going to get in electronics. No, that's just not, that, that you're, you're, you take a fork in the road at this point, I believe, right? So I had a real serious conversation with my parents because in high school, they gave me a test and it told, it told me that I should be a forest ranger. <laughs> and, uh, my dad, of course, has had this conversation with his coworker about this student that happens to be my dad's son. And um, yeah, so uh, my GPA at the University of Akron, I finally dropped out after three years of slugging it out, uh, was just under 2.0. I think I'm still on probation technically at the University of Akron at the age of 63. So um, <laughs> I, I do have degrees. I graduated from the University of New York. and. Um, I actually graduated with honors, so I did okay in the end. My degrees are not in electronics. My degree, well, I have an undergraduate degree in uh, nuclear technologies and physics. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in computer technology. And then uh, somewhere around 40, I went, I'm kind of bored. About 10 years out of the Navy, I said, hey, let's, let's get an MBA because the people with MBAs look like they make more money than me. So I, I uh, convinced the university um, to let me study for and take tests for an MBA without sitting in class. And so flying back and forth to places like China and Japan for Rockwell at the time, I was able to finish my MBA. Yeah, I think this is interesting. You know, that there, as you know, the, our, our, as we talked about this, the goal of this, this uh, series of interviews is sort of uh, – revealing things that uh, that each of you have uh, choices you've made along the way and, and options and that some of our listeners are, are maybe 
some of them are at least earlier in their career path or getting ready to make changes or want to make changes. And so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. One thing there is that that advanced education, although it has its you know value, um, the timing of it can matter. And you didn't the timing of it and what you were choosing to do wasn't the right fit. But later it was. And so the people can relieve themselves of some of that pressure. If you must do this in this order, you didn't do it in that order. And you changed the order and you went back later and did it and did quite a quite a bit of it. Yeah. I, I, the certificate on the wall behind me is my Global Industrial Automation Control, GICSP, I think they call yeah. it. Um, yeah, the Global Industrial Cybersecurity Professional. Huh? Yeah. It's good until 2023. And I will be 65 then, I think. <laughs> Um, so it, it, I, I would say that probably the one thing that makes us different than a lot of people is uh, that staying curious all the time thing. Uh, it, my children get upset with me because when I'm spending time with my grandchildren and they say, so what do you do? Um, they call me Opa, which is the German word for grandpa. Say, so what do you do, Opa? And I said, well, I, I don't know. And they go, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, like, can you tell us what your career is? And we're not it's too complicated. <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, they get to some point and you look at them and you go, look, someday, someday, Opa will know what he's going to be when he grows up and then I'll be done. But until then, stay curious, constantly changing, constantly evolving. Um, I just took a bunch of process safety courses and I'm getting ready to, um, get some certifications for process safety stuff, uh, risk analysis and things like that. Um, it's a, you know, if, if you're not constantly trying to do the next thing, learn something, push the envelope, then uh, you can become obsolete very quickly. That's the one thing I learned early on. Um, I had a dear friend, at, uh, so I was in the Navy for a while after I dropped out of college. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, that, that's that's the, the, the choice you made, right? You said, I'm not going to finish this right now. It's not fitting. But you went somewhere else and got huge education. And then, uh, you know, that that did impact your, your future path. Yeah, the Navy taught me how to learn and why learning was important, quite frankly. Um, the education in the military wasn't a – the people who teach you in the military um, typically don't just tell you something and expect you to read the book and figure it out on your own. Uh, it is very much an outcome-based program. Uh, they want soldiers and sailors and airmen that know what the heck they're doing. Um, and in my case, you went into, you went right. into, especially the line of work you went into, uh, even more so than other areas of the military. You really need to know what you're doing. Yeah, I got to, I got to play at the ripe old age of 22 with a 165 megawatt nuclear power plant. So, um, yeah, that's. That was great education. Um, and here's where I always ask this. Here's where industrial controls and industrial systems does intersect with your journey right then. Um, big, yeah. Big, yeah. So, um, I mean, I had when I went to electronic school, um, it was still electronics, but I learned uh, radio and radar. I actually specialized in radar. You got to do one or the other. Um, so I learned on a, a, a radar set called a Army Navy SPS-10, which is pretty much crap radar, but it's better than nothing. Uh, and I remember taking, I, I actually paid attention in class, but they give you these waveguides right on the end of an instrument. And the guy in the lab beside me, in the, at the technical station beside me, 
put his his waveguide reading thing, whatever that instrument is, put it into the waveguide, which is basically a rectangular and signals bounce off in there, but it's a, a very high power microwave signal. So he puts it in, he pulls it out, and it's about this long. <laughs> and he goes, uh-oh. <laughs> I put it in at the, there's these little doors you open up, you put it in at the wrong frequency and it just disappeared, um, which was very cool. Uh, and um, that was kind of the moment where I went, hey, this stuff's pretty awesome. Uh, it, it moved from theory to reality at that instant. And from then on, I always wanted to be able to touch stuff, um, to play with it, to see how it worked, to break it, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's stuff laying around my office that I play with and break, even though it's not my job anymore to really do that, but I still do it. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a formative moment. And ever since then, uh, PLCs and industrial control systems and operating technology, that's been the world you've been in. And that, that, that's the step that took you in that direction. Yeah. Pretty much everything after that. Different roles, but always in this sort of touching that stuff, right? Yeah, coming out of the Navy, uh, my mom got me a job. Um, no one would hire me. When I joined the Navy, no one would hire me because I didn't have enough school. Uh, and I wasn't specialized in anything, so all I could do was general labor. When I got out of the Navy, nobody could read my resume. Uh, because it was all about nuclear power control systems, you know, how to move hafnium control rods up and down in a nuclear power plant without causing a scram. And so um, my mom worked for Alan Bradley, Rock Automation today, but she worked for Alan Bradley at the time. They It had been bought, but they still called it Alan Bradley. And um, she called a local distributor in Akron, Ohio, and said, hey, uh, could you like check out my son, you know, listen to him, give him a chance, see if he could, you know, he's, he's going to interviews and people are like, wow, I'd love to hire you, but you'll quit in three months because you'll be bored, you know, and stuff like that. And so they gave me a shot um, and I was bored in a few months, but I, I basically looked at all the catalogs on the shelf that nobody else was touching and went, what is this stuff? And I started selling software when 386 computers were the norm. Um, uh, back when we had something other than Microsoft Excel and Microsoft Word. Uh, matter of fact, I didn't even know Microsoft had software back then. We were using um, yeah. Lotus 123 and stuff like that. And, and I actually figured out how to get a PLC uh, to communicate to Lotus 123. And you could actually watch bar graphs going up and down and stuff. And it was like, wow, I'm in. This is cool. Next thing I knew, I bought a bunch of computers and um, was building a 3D virtual reality animation company when the 48625 came out. And when it read to the 4633 megahertz, I was like, wow, <laughs> all of a sudden I had like more horsepower. And instead of it taking 24 hours to render a second of video, it only took about 16 hours to render a second of video. And we look at the technology today, we're like, who would ever put up with that? But you know, that's what we had at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that ended up getting me sucked out of uh, the distributor. I really liked working for the distributor. Don't get me wrong. I made a lot of great relationships. Uh, I, changed, I changed the way tires are made, um, which was awesome. Uh, I, I put automation controls and used my physics knowledge to build some motion control systems for tire building and tire assembly machines that nobody would seen before that could build, like, perfectly round tires a huge percentage of the time. 
um, which literally changed the industry. And my company patted me on the back because we were selling millions of dollars worth of hardware uh, to these companies. So that was cool. The software company in Milwaukee called me and said, hey, we're an industrial software company. What do you think? Um, and I turned them down a few times. And finally, I went to work for them. Uh, and it was a software company called ICOM. Uh, nothing to do with radios. Uh, people that are into radios know about ICOM, but it wasn't that. It was actually an industrial automation software company that had reverse engineered the PLC2 from Alan Bradley and figured out how to build um, a DOS programming software package when Alan Bradley was selling these gigantic terminals about the size of the monitor behind your head to program yeah. things and you could hardly carry the thing, right? And so all of a sudden you could buy a generic computer and program them, generic, you know, an, an Intel $2,200 box. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty exciting. So I, I went to work for ICOM and uh, that, was, uh, that was a turning point in my life big time turning point in my life because now my life was all about computers and software. And uh, that was um, about 19, ooh, I hate to say, <laughs> I'm trying to think when that was actually, I'm, 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 I'm going to pass on the date because I don't want to give you a wrong date. I'll think about it in a minute. We'll see what we figure it out. I think it was around 1993 to 1994 from my notes. Probably in the 93, 94 area. Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> the 486 computer was king, um, I ended up selling that business to a company in Canton, Ohio uh, that bought all my assets, and I basically walked away from a business I was doing in my spare time, net zero. And so I didn't lose money, I didn't make money. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a great experience. I, I was doing things with computers and soundboards and, and uh, animation that other people had no idea anything about, which was awesome. I learned all kinds of things about IRQs and bizarre things on boards and how you made computers. Yeah. Um, well, your your career path, it, it's you know now that we're unpacking it, it's sort of interesting. It makes sense where where you are today. To me, you've got this engineering, you know, elect, you know, electrical engineering, physics, a nuclear reactor, the military, you know, crams a lot of this real working experience. So operating technology is something that you know, and safety. And we'll talk about that. Is that's I know that's part of you know part of your life today, and or it has been in, in recent years. It's integrated, right? That's one thing to make these networks different. You know, the kind of networks we're all concerned with make them different than traditional networks. But so you're getting all these formative blocks. Then you can get into software, and now of course we're talking about all the intersection of software and internet, you know, networking technology within these same environments. So you're you know you, you've had the the building blocks for for where you are today, and it's Rockwell and then Tritium. And then InSource and Ultra Electronics and, and now Connexus for, for, for quite a while. Yeah, a lot of job changes. Um, probably because I'm too curious and and if I'm not making a difference, I move on, to be honest with you. Um, at uh, yeah, so at, I think the turning point when I kicked into the cybersecurity world was probably um, so a little over a year. Somewhere between a year and 18 months after I went to work for ICOM, it got bought by Rockwell. And I figured I was out of a job, um, but that's not how it worked out. And because uh, they had thousands of salespeople and we had like, I don't know, 12 or 15. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
But what I decided to do was to just go back and make my guys very wildly successful in the territory that I had and work with the Rockwell team and do everything I could to make them, uh, make to get them to understand and see what I saw. And uh, it was turning the corner. People were really starting to, uh, instead of building these giant mimic buses, starting to use computers and HMIs, even though we called them MMIs back then. Uh, they became HMIs uh, very quickly. Um, I watched historians be created. The first ones were called trending packages and stuff. They weren't even historians. They were basically mimicking the function of the, the little spitting needle thing, you know, where they had the paper. And um, so all kinds of cool stuff like that. Um, but the uh, when Rockwell bought us, um, at some point, and I don't remember when it was, but at some point I met this crazy guy named Brian Singer. And Brian had just come out of the Army not too long before that. I, I really don't know what he was doing before I met him at Rockwell, but I had become very adamant at Rockwell going. I'd been in the software business for uh, about eight to ten years at that point uh, for Rockwell. And um, Brian, I think I met Brian at an ISA show in Houston, Texas, to be honest with you. Um, and uh, I honestly thought the guy was crazy, um, but I loved him. And I was being really adamant about sustainability, about doing things like backups and, and making sure that you had the right code in the machine and that you could, um, what UPSs were for and different types of memory storage. And I was trying to teach people how to build factories that were sustainable. Um, we were getting into redundancy and things like that, true redundancy when, redundancy didn't exist um, and uh, so Brian and I got together and we were talking and and we convinced each other that we had an idea and we went on the road together and we spent a massive amount of I don't know it's like probably the better part of two years traveling around North America all over the place doing these sustainability and security summits and we would literally teach people uh, Brian would talk about security which I learned a lot uh, and I would talk about sustainability, and I hope he listened. But um, the two of us became quite a pair, uh, and we worked together quite a bit and, and stayed very close. So um, anyway, some years went by, some things changed, and uh, I kind of run my course at Rockwell. I wasn't sure what was next. I was completely pigeonholed as a software guy, which was really bizarre for a physicist. Um, and I couldn't get out of my role. Uh, they shoved me into marketing for a while and I was very unhappy. Uh, and then my executive sponsor got moved to another country overnight. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's not good. Um, wow, the guy who kind of cast a shadow over me is gone <laughs> yeah. and kept me out of trouble is gone. And I went, eh. so my phone rang and somebody uh, said, hey, there's a job for you at Honeywell. And so I went to work for a Honeywell business in Richmond, Virginia called Tritium and stepped across the line into building automation and the Internet of Things. And that was awesome. Um, that was an executive role. I went in there as a vice president of sales. Um, I took over operations, did all kinds of weird stuff all over the world, which was fun. But now I was now I was uh, responsible for building and shipping um, electronic components and software, and uh, it was a blast. I had a great time. Uh, we moved 
a massive amount of material and software, sold lots and lots of products, uh, brought on a major amount of OEMs that took our technology to market and basically conquered the world, as they say, and, and the numbers were insane. And as things go, um, Tritium had been an acquisition of Honeywell, and there came a point when we got to like the third executive that the business reported into, things kind of went sideways, and I felt like um, my, uh, my future there was in doubt, even though I had been very successful. Uh, so I left and I jumped back into the industrial automation world and I kind of went to work for this company that's uh, commonly, well, their real name is InSource, InSource Solutions in Richmond, Virginia, but they are the Wonderwear Southeast rep, uh, Southeast United States. So um, I went and tried to learn Wonderwear and get really involved in Wonderwear. And, and I got to tell you, I was, you know, it's like the Apple Windows thing. Man, once you're a Mac guy, Windows is hard. And when you're a Windows guy, Mac's hard. And honestly, I looked at Wonderware and everything they did looked backwards to me. It was that negative and positive polarity thing again. And it, it, was, it wasn't a good fit. And um, the president of the company was smart enough to sit down with me one day and say, look, I think we're wasting your time. You need to go do something else. And uh, that was actually, I was very grateful. Um, I actually knew that day was coming. Um, I think three days later, I agreed to go to work for a friend in Washington, D.C. And so I went to work for Ultra Electronics 3TI. And the goal there was to um, take some technology that I'd been working with uh, when I was at Tritium and commercialize it so we could use it in the industrial marketplace. And it was basically built for the military, very unique firewall technology that uh, we could shrink down and take the cost out of for the civilian world. And it, it's the kind of box that you could stick directly on the internet and it was completely dark. You couldn't do a denial of service attack to it. It wouldn't respond to anything except whatever was programmed to speak to it exactly the way with exactly the key exchange. Otherwise, yeah. it sat there dark. Um, we actually called it uh, dark node technology because you could literally put a naked PLC behind it, stick it right on the internet, and you were safe, which was wild. <laughs> and no one wanted it. <laughs> Everybody I talked to was like, yeah, we're not doing it. So not the first invention uh, or, 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 you know, really cool technology that didn't, uh, didn't find its market, you know, at the time that it, you know, could have. Yeah, it was a little ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, but that happens. But it wasn't the first time I'd gotten ahead of the curve with software. We built something for Ford when I was at Rockwell. We built something because of a Ford motor plant that I'd been in at Rockwell. And, and uh, the president of Rockwell Software at the time, a really dear friend who's passed away, unfortunately, Rich Ryan. Um, Rich came to me after about two years of me trying to sell it and say, so um, it cost me a lot of money and nobody's bought this thing. And I went, yeah, but they're going to, I promise. And he goes, I have to shelve it, Jim. I can't continue this argument. We got to move the people off the project onto something else. So we did. And um, <laughs> about a year and a half after we did that, the phone rang and Ford went, hey, remember that software you were talking to us about? We want it. <laughs> and I'm like, it's gone. Department's gone. People are gone. Yeah. So it happens. It's the nature of life. It, it, you, you can't you can't carry that just like a job. You can't carry it. You, you're going to do it as long as you're good at it. When you're not good at it anymore, you need to move on and do something else. 
Yeah. Same thing with technology. Even though you might have it nailed something and put all your life and energy into it, if it isn't the right thing, move on. And if it, and they can say if it's at the right timing, right? I mean, sometimes it is just timing. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's not useful to see things in the future. It's probably better to see them. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I was sitting in a meeting in, in Cleveland, Ohio with um, uh, Steve Eisenbrown. And Steve Eisenbrown ran the PLC division of Rockwell Automation. And, uh, at the time, there was there was a lot of angst. They had bought this software company they knew was a loose cannon. Um, I was one of the more normal guys, I think, at the time. Uh, so Steve took the time to coach me a little bit, spent some time talking to me. So did um, uh, so did an Englishman, the guy who got shipped off to the other side of the world <laughs> overnight. Uh, but they both, uh, Kieran Colton, actually, uh, I. I Really like both these guys, and Kieran got shipped off to the uh, to Asia Pacific region overnight one day without. He, he told me something was going on, and then he was gone, and and uh, that was a little disheartening. But Eisenbrown told me something really interesting. He said, "Jim, he said you're here always trying to invent the next big thing, and Rockwell is a fast follower." I said, I, I don't understand. And he goes, we're not inventing the greatest, newest technology. We're not going to spend a ton of money. What we're going to do is we're going to invent the best one, the best supported one, the best enabled one, second or third, but not first. And that actually meant a lot to me. Uh, and I think in the cybersecurity industry going forward, we've got to be willing to do that type of stuff. That's... Um, well, everybody's got ideas. Uh, everybody's chasing the golden nugget, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the reality is things evolve constantly and our attitude about them and the way we do things. I, you know, I, I have people that's security PHA review book that uh, they got real upset with me. And they're like, what are you thinking? We should go back to pneumatics and analog technology. And I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with either one of those. But no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that there are some circuits that are so critical that we need to rethink what we're hooking them up to. And that's a reasonable thing to do in the cybersecurity world is to say, and I'll give you an example. Um, the overspeed switches that were on the um, centrifuges at the Nance facility in Iran, did they really need to be you know, they hooked them up to a PLC. They hooked them up so that you could communicate to them. You could do stuff. Uh, I see the same thing with motor overspeed switches and stuff like that. And every now and then, every now and then, we got to remind ourselves that it's okay to use a relief valve. It's okay to use a a disconnected device, even though it might have the coolest micro technology on it and that you'd be able to look at it and tune it from your desk and everything else, you might not want to do that. And we've got to be smart enough to know where that line is. And so that's a challenge in industry that, that we're really facing going forward. I said, I've been here seven years as of a few days ago. Yeah, seven seven year anniversary. So there you go. And so uh, talk just a, you know, a little bit before we go on to maybe some of the ahas of your career, you know, things you would do differently, that sort of thing, which I, I know our listeners want to hear, uh, just maybe put sort of put an endpoint on that whole, that whole, you know, step-by-step -step career path. You're at Conexus, you've been there seven years, security, safety, you know, control systems, all that stuff is coming to play there. 
Yeah, actually. So when I got here, um, I was actually trying to steal Brian Singer from Conexus. <laughs> I was trying to get him to come to Ultra Electronics and it backfired. Um, now I'm here and Brian's off doing something else. So yeah. uh, Brian was also uh, one of the episodes of this show. So, you, you know, it's it's funny when you brought him up earlier, like, yep, well, Brian will be, I don't know what order we'll release these in, but you're, you guys are in here together. Yeah, I, you know what? It's, it, it was fun listening to you list, talk about the names of people that are doing these. And it's it's kind of a who's who of the industry. And um, it's the people that get their knuckles dirty trying to do this stuff on a regular basis. It's really fun. So anyway, so um, I, met, I, I came to an interview here and the interview lasted. Uh, I was here before nine o'clock in the morning and um, somewhere around 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, I looked at the president of the company and said, I don't mean to be rude, but I really got to get out of here. <laughs> so I had well over a 12 hour interview day and um, and they hired me anyway, which I thought was shocking. Uh, but the because um, I'm not a chemical engineer, most of the people here are. Uh, I'm not a risk analysis guy and most of the people here are. I would argue today I am but I wasn't at the time. Uh, I, I knew what the meantime between failure was and I knew how to calculate it and I knew how to design systems to deal with it from a sustainability perspective, but maybe not from a process safety perspective. So Conexus is a company that literally spends every waking moment trying to keep people alive. Um, our goal is to keep stuff from blowing up. And so we do, um, in the ISA world, it's the ISA 84 standards body, which is the ISA IEC 61511 standard, uh, which is uh, also the OSHA 1910 process safety stuff. So um, in essence, the people here, what, what we do is we basically design um, the requirements for the safety functions to keep stuff in a relatively safe state or to put it in a safe state when it goes sideways. And um, the cybersecurity side of the business definitely fit. Um, we built out a pretty good cybersecurity team over the first few years of me coming here. It, it wasn't me, but it, it, it didn't hurt to have a guy who was experienced in sales and marketing too, uh, to put a face on cybersecurity for the industry. Um, a lot of cybersecurity guys are really good at doing what they do, but you know, they don't know how to tell the world that that's what they're doing, right? And so we're getting better at that as time goes on. We're, we're all beginning yeah. to learn how to tell our story. But the, uh, um, you know, that that we grew a business. It was interesting. Um, I remember, I, I think you came through this facility at one point. There were a few people who came here yeah. uh, from different companies. There's a lot of people that have brought us their technology and shown it to us. Uh, everything was going pretty good. Um, we had a pretty decent team, people like Jim Gilson, Brian Singer, yeah. um, other guys that have gone off to do other things. Um, and uh, one of them works with Brian now and uh, he, we hired them. They were, they were very much IT people that we hired to come in to mix with the industrial control cybersecurity type guys. Yeah. And, um, and we got a lot of recognition and people started really paying attention and we won a massive job. So we were doing some really decent jobs and then we won a huge job in the Middle East. And um, it was one of those jobs you're bidding and you're like, do we really want to bid this? And the boss is like, yes, you're going to bid it. Okay, we'll bid it. So we yeah. bid it and we won it. 
Uh, matter of fact, the first time around, we actually didn't win it. It went to somebody else, and that went sideways. The other team couldn't do it. Uh, it fell apart. Uh, so they basically went to the second company in the list and said, okay, you were the alternate, so we're going to give you the job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't really know that in the beginning. As a matter of fact, I didn't actually find that out until well into the project um, that we were – we weren't awarded the project and then we, I just thought it a long time had passed. No one would tell me who was awarded the project. And then um, I found out uh, about a year later, well into the project that we were the second guys <laughs> um, that the first team fell through. So they were in a time crunch and they were stressed out. And the guy who was running the project, um, I don't think in the beginning even knew how to spell cybersecurity. So that didn't go well. Um, and very frustrating. Uh, anybody who does business in different parts of the world knows sometimes it's hard to un it's hard for different cultures to understand each other. And, and in the Middle East, sometimes it's very hard because you have people from a variety of different countries living there, working, and, and they're under pressures that we don't understand as Americans. So it's challenging. Well, anyway, long story short, I was in Milwaukee talking to Rockwell Automation with uh, another friend, Brian Olton, and uh, we ate lunch, had a really successful morning. We were going to do a whole bunch of cybersecurity stuff for him, and I got in the car driving back to the Chicago airport after lunch, uh, and um, my phone rang, and I found out one of the cybersecurity guys on the team had quit. And that was a Thursday or Friday, and I knew on Monday or Tuesday I had to be in Houston. By the time I got to Houston and met with the president of Conexus, Ed, uh, Ed and I sat down to breakfast in a, in a um, uh, Holiday Inn Express um, shortly, you know, after a short night's sleep. Looked at each other over breakfast, and um, pretty much the entire cybersecurity team except for myself and one cross-trained process safety guy down in Houston. The two of us were the only ones left. Everyone else had quit. And he was on a bunch of process safety jobs. Uh, and so we had a long chat, and we decided for the most part to shut down the cybersecurity business, to take it off the website, not advertise it, not promote it. Uh, we were willing to go down the path of the security PHA review with people, but we weren't willing to continue to push um, cybersecurity like we had been. And, you know, it was, we had a lot of discussions about do we hire new people um, and build a new team? Uh, and the discussions went something like this. Let's hire some people with two-year degrees out of um, tech schools and stuff that understand enough about IT that we can train them how to do the job and they aren't like way overqualified and want a ton of money. Um, one of the problems in this industry is when you're in a, a consulting business is everybody thinks there's lots of cash, but in reality, um, there isn't always a lot of cash and people don't like the idea of paying $200 an hour for a cybersecurity guy. Uh, they want to pay less. If they see the hourly rate, they get really upset. Yeah. So, so it's a challenge. Anyway, long story short, I went to the Middle East and finished the project and then I shut down the business over the next year and I did all the projects that came in. We stopped bidding jobs and I did all the work that we won, um, which was fun. Um, and even though Brian had already left, I actually hired Brian to come help me on a job, which was kind of fun. And uh, it was actually a lot of fun. It was, it was a good time to catch up with each other again. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so there we are. So we're here today and we are primarily a process safety company. Uh, however, um, I'm on the ISA 84 uh, working group nine, which is um, talking about uh, coming up with a, um, uh, some standard language around uh, service security for uh, the safety instrumented system functions, if you will, the safety functions that keep the bad stuff from happening. So what do you see as the, one of the greatest challenges you've experienced uh, in your career? And, you know, do you see people earlier in their security careers than yourself, perhaps now entering the field, facing that, you know, similar kind of challenge? And what would you, what did you do or what would you have done differently? One of the, the biggest challenges I've had, um, and this may be because I, I got such a great Navy education. One of the biggest challenges I've had is finding people who can sit down with me and actually show me how stuff works. Um, there are a lot of people that could talk to it. There are a lot of people that will sit down and rattle the keys on a computer. But when you ask them, hey, what are you doing? How does this actually work? Um, it, it's frustrating sometimes, the inability or the fear, if you will, to share that knowledge. And I think, I think for the industry and for everybody, uh, especially the younger people that are coming up, is that we owe it to all of us so that we have a little bit better world and a little bit safer world to um, share openly what we know uh, so that others can get better at defending the stuff they have to defend and building the things that, that can defend themselves. Yeah, engineering by design or security by design, building it to begin with, right? Takes fundamental understanding of how it all works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Dave down in, uh, the guy who runs S4 would love to hear that. <laughs> uh, it's um, the industry's frustrating, right? And the cost, years ago, I sat down with um, Michelin and we were gonna put computers and, and HMIs and PLCs and all this stuff on these great big tire presses and stuff for Michelin tire. And the Michelin guy said, well, we really don't care what you put on there, but you gotta support it for the next 25 to 30 years, whatever you put on. And of course, all the control guys and the computer guys were like, and the software guys were like, uh, well, that's not reasonable. Maybe three, <laughs> not 30. Um, it's designing this stuff in is tough. It's hard. Um, and, and, and everybody has the answer, right? They're going to put a little key in it. They're going to put a little code in it. They're going to put a little handshake in whatever it is. Hey, those, those things are all fine. But the reality comes back to we got to get better at this stuff and we need to talk openly about it, which is going on more and more in the industry. And, and I'm encouraged by this type of stuff that as, as I get older, my first hack. Um, so the first time I ever hacked anybody and you got to do that once in your career. Uh, the first time I ever hacked anybody, um, we were using 46 computers and dial up modems. We were logging into our company, it was that ICOM company in Wisconsin that uh, was uh, building software for Alan Bradley stuff. And um, I saw one of my coworkers down in Atlanta online and I went, well, isn't that interesting? So I can actually see his computer. So I wonder what I can see in his computer. And so I started running these little queries on his computer and I'm like, well, I can tell everything about his computer. I can actually see what printer he has hooked up to his computer. 
And I said, I bet that computer will take this print string. So I sent a print string to his computer. They went, ha, 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 I'm in your computer. I own you now. And it starts printing that, right? It comes out. And he looks at it. And he starts yanking cables out of the wall. And so we're at, a, we're at a meeting not too long after that where we all come back together about once every two or three months. And he's talking about this horrible thing that happened to him one night. And this event he went through. And I'm roaring. And then he figured out it was me and he beat me up. So, no, I mean, he didn't beat me up. But we had, after a few whiskeys, we had some words and, and you know, hugged aggressively. <laughs> so it was fun. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. But, you know, stuff like that makes a difference. And that's how you learn. And you got to encourage people to do that stuff. You got to encourage people to break things. Um, it's how we learn. And I, I, I wish that the... Oil and gas companies, nuclear power plants, stuff like that, had better. Um, so today we talk about digital twin technology all the time, and that's pretty cool. But the reality is, um, like at the SARS refinery, uh, it's easier for me to drive around outside of the fence and look for something to get into to see if I can get on a wire than it is to try to hack something very sophisticated. If I can gain access to a network simply and then do something, um, you know, I could do a lot of damage pretty quick. Just a disgruntled employee. Uh, I was touring a site out in North Dakota near the Canadian border. Um, we were walking in an oil patch and um, preparing to do a cybersecurity job for these guys that, that uh, um, was in the middle of nowhere and I sure didn't want to do it in the winter because it's a horrible place in the winter. But uh, we're standing there and the guy goes, oh, by the way, right over there, that little thing sticking out of the ground that looks like a phone box, you know, that you might have in front of your house. He said, that's actually the patch system for all of our cables. It's not even behind a fence, right? And he says, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a short story real quick. So we were out here and there were some people doing some work on the site. And this guy who was literally on his very last day on the job and was retiring and going to go home and never do this anymore in a remote, faraway place, was running the backhoe and he spun around and he grabbed the junction box for all of our industrial communications, Ethernet connections in the field. And he grabbed it and he picked it up and dropped it in the truck with all the other trash. And he drove away. And then he got on a plane and flew home. And so the moral to that story is your weakest link might be beyond your fence line and you don't even know it. <laughs> it might be the guy you just fired and you didn't walk him out of the building quick enough. Yeah, yeah. And so if, if we backtrack to something you said earlier, it, yeah. it seems like if you if, if a person at any stage of their career, but certainly if they've got years ahead that they can build building blocks, if they want to make themselves maybe indispensable in you know in the future, find someone materials, reading, mentors, but find to dig deeper into so, the underlying technology that they're working on, or they're going to work on, or what they want to work on. Right? If you understand the fundamental building blocks of it, how does this work? That will you know if you're a security person, that will later benefit you significantly. It sounds like you bet. Um, it makes a huge difference. Really understanding how stuff works is. Um that staying curious thing, um, just just knowing what code string to put into a device, knowing what numbers to put into, you know, a, a field on a computer screen in front of you is one thing. Knowing what 
the device or the computer is going to do with that and how it's going to actually function is a whole nother level of knowledge that I don't see enough of. And I, I believe, it, and, I, and I don't know how you get that other than like the way I did, you just keep going until you figure it out. Um, I taught myself how to weld a few years ago because I never learned how to weld and I decided I'd start welding. And my first project was I was gonna build a front loader from scratch for my wife. That's nuts, right? I mean, I'm not a welder. I never welded two pieces of metal deliberately together ever in my life. I, I, will, I will say I did accidentally a couple times with electricity, but that was another issue. But the, uh, I'm actually lucky I'm still here some days. I, I, I've watched some really big sparks blow up in my face. Um, but the, um, you know, I, I sat down to do it, and the first thing I realized was I wasn't very good at it. Uh, and I, I wasn't succeeding, and, but I was determined to figure out how to do it because the cost of a new tractor and the cost of a front loader was quite a bit of money. And I just honestly didn't want to spend it. Uh, because I was thinking about getting older, and so I think I was 60, 60, maybe 61 at the time, and I went, I'm going to do it myself, and so that was my Christmas present to myself, was figure out how to build this thing, and so I called a friend of mine who worked for Honda, and uh, as a mechanical engineer at Honda, and I said, hey, did Honda teach you how to weld, and he goes, they did, and I said, um, I'm buying the beer, the whiskey, and the food, come on over, <laughs> so him and his wife came over, and 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 he was a decent welder, to be honest with you, but he couldn't teach me how to weld, which was frustrating. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what, just slow down and let me watch. But I kept asking him, what are you doing? And he's like, ah. and, it, and welding is a perfect example of somewhere where people aren't very good at teaching. You can go on YouTube and watch hundreds and hundreds of videos about welding. And believe me, I watched every one of them. And nobody ever told me to slow way down. <laughs> and um it you know by watching by watching robert weld i figured out how to weld you know better you said you know where can people you know get this information you said well one is you know go look at tutorials videos whatever any source on how does something work the other one is is go ask someone and so i was going to ask you about uh you know any mentorship uh in your life both you giving and receiving that's played any sort of significant part should you know people can should seek this out you know i think what's your experience been with that yeah mentorship's actually a strange thing um it we need more of it um i i watched i i watched the shows like this old house and I, I learned how to build and do all kinds of things watching the guys on this old house do it um, and I love watching them work with uh, the kids that are coming through that want to grow up to be house builders and listen to them tell their stories and, and, and watching Tommy Silva slow down and do something and explain in detail why he's doing it the way he is to somebody or Norm Abram to say, hey, look, you know, we could do this with a level, but let's use a plumb bob. We're going to use an old piece of technology that's been around since they built the pyramids. Um, let's use that piece of technology because here's why, and it works better in this situation. And I'm like, these guys have access to the best tools in the world. And they're teaching people when to use the great tools and when to use the simple tools. Um, it's something that the trades do much better 
than we do in these industries, including cybersecurity. And I think there's a lot of room for this. If I ever retire, um, I'm gonna probably go to a technical school and I'm gonna probably sit down and teach people how to actually use Wireshark to do stuff. And we're gonna do it like one thing at a time. We're gonna learn how to hook up to stuff and not break it. We're gonna learn how to use a 420 milliamp uh, circuit and how to actually use um, current meter and, and voltmeters and ohm meters and stuff to figure stuff out. Um, there is a level of knowledge the industry needs that it isn't getting very easy, uh, easily. Uh, and in the cybersecurity world, it's all zeros and ones and computers and screens and some flashy whiz-bang thing you've downloaded off the internet that runs on Ubuntu or Linux of some other nature. And it's like, okay, that's great, but I, I need something. I, I ripped all our IT infrastructure out of this building and replaced it at the beginning of this uh, era of COVID. When we all went home, uh, after we, after I sat at home for a few days working, I went, you know what? Nobody's in the office. <laughs> it's a really good time to fix our infrastructure. And so um, I drove in. I, I bought new firewalls and switches and, and replaced the infrastructure. And I pulled cables. Um, I pulled Cat 6E cables between here and the other side of the building. And people were like, why don't you pull fiber? Well, well, I really don't know how to run fiber, so I'm gonna pull Cat 60, that'll give me the throughput I need for now. If at some point in the future we need more, we'll pull fiber. But, you know, we did all that and and we did the architecture here. And honestly, I knew about 90% of what I was doing, but there were a few things I learned the hard way doing that. And, and that's okay. There, there's nothing wrong with that. It's you know, this, I'm going to plug somebody. So there was this guy in Cleveland, Ohio that worked for Rockwell, worked for Alan Bradley. He'll tell you he worked for Alan Bradley. Um, his name was Doug Wiley, um, or Dennis Wiley. I'm sorry. There is a Doug Wiley. There is a Dennis Wiley Jr., and there's a Dennis Wiley. So Dennis Wiley was their dad. Um, and Dennis Wiley, when I came out of the Navy, uh, I, I was hesitant to put my neck out there sometimes. and. Dennis looked at me, I, I, I was a bit of a fish out of water because I hadn't, I didn't know how to program a PLC, but I knew things about physics nobody else knew. I knew things about motors nobody else knew. I knew what a variable speed controller was in 1988 and had been working on them for years and nobody knew what a variable speed controller was yet. And so I was out doing motion control and all this stuff, putting these things in, was being very successful, having a blast. And I, I I had to do something and I was very hesitant. And Dennis looked at me and he said, Jim, I'm going to tell you something. Somebody told me a long time ago. And I went, what is it? He goes, the person in the room that knows one more thing than everybody else is the expert. Go in with that attitude. You'll be fine. So, yeah. And I think it's the expert's job not to hide what they know, but to share what they know and to be vulnerable in that aspect. Well, that's good advice for, you know, for any of the listeners we've got, especially those that have a lot to give. Uh, I think we've noticed a theme with most of the people who've been on the show, if not everybody, they've been, uh, you know, willing and open to to give advice and mentorship. And so I, I think it's it's sort of a, it's a two-way street. People need to ask and, and uh, hopefully people will say, yeah, sure, let me tell you, let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you how that works. Let me give you some advice. And we've got enough workforce problems that that, that is a piece of the, the future success of this, you know, of our community. 
this is a, certainly a piece of the puzzle. There's no question. Okay, well, uh, we've come uh, to the end of a great interview with Jim McGlone, father, grandfather, inventor, woodsman, physicist, electrician, uh, hunter, the author. Uh, you know, I, I know you're all those things and and more. A man of uh, a lot of uh, talents and interests and and doing doing good work on our industry now for for quite some time. So thank you for coming on the show, Jim. I really appreciate it. You know, the list of things you're just talking about highlights all the scars I have on my body. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Derek. It always is, and I I love what you guys are doing. And uh, I just renewed my CSA membership. So um, yeah, keep it up. Well, awesome. Thank you, Jim. And and thank you for serving as a chapter president in Columbus, Ohio. You've you've done you've done you've been involved from the early days and uh it's sort of it's been evolving and it still is evolving. And so thanks for, for joining so early and, and uh helping spearhead some things in uh in, in your, your corner of the world. Thank you.